server. Yeah, we're away. David, good to see you again. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. Oh, excellent. Um, starting to head into spring there, so the uh, flowers will be popping up in um, beautiful Europe. Yep, tulips everywhere. Wonderful. Now, how scary has it been that close to the uh, Ukraine action? Well, it focuses the mind. I mean, the, um, the mood in Europe, because no one even a month ago thought this was likely to happen. I mean, they, they thought it was Putin negotiating or trying to increase uh, leverage and then suddenly woke up and uh, he'd invaded. So I think that the mood is kind of shock and outrage and horror and resolve to do something. I mean, clearly the fact that we're now talking about uh, tactical nuclear, chemical weapons, Europe is talking about do they have enough kind of iodine tablets, that kind of focuses the mind. And even yeah, here in the Netherlands, we're getting a, a bunch of Ukrainian refugees um, kind of coming to stay, uh, being housed or, or going to local schools. So it kind of feels, mm -hmm. uh, it feels pretty close. Uh, and it feels, and again, this is partly conditioned by geography, but it kind of feels like something has snapped. You know, something is very different now than it was you know, three, four weeks ago. You know, the world has changed. So how, um, I'm, by, I'm certainly not at your pay grade uh, in terms of economic commentary and understanding. Um, uh, with you sort of advising small countries, uh, help me understand why this US administration, if we go, go back to Georgia, Condoleezza Rice landed in Georgia when Putin had a crack at going in there and they put some military assets in and um, stood up to him and scared him off. Um, why on earth is the Biden administration not taking the same approach and uh, and fronting up into Ukraine at an early stage? Obviously, it's too late, probably too late for that now. But what understanding do you, and I mean, you may not have this understanding, but is it Biden's lack of, you know, is this World War, you know, some are pointing to World War II all over again, where a top Churchill would come in and actually be bold and front up to the enemy? Is it a repeat of you know Chamberlain Churchill, or is it is it not that? Or are they stuck in a situation where it's a different scenario? Well, so I'd make a, a few points. I mean, one, I think in general the rap on Biden is he's done actually a pretty good job, um, both Biden and the broader administration in terms of you know the US in particular were releasing intelligence uh, publicly, which is unusual, basically saying Putin is going to invade, he's going to invade, trust us. And the Europeans were one saying. Uh, we don't we don't think he is. Uh, so the US has been ahead of the, the, the curve uh, on this one and also ahead of the curve mm -hmm. along with the UK in terms of supplying uh, weaponry, financial support to, to the Ukrainians. I, I think in terms of the Georgia incident, I mean, the US didn't have boots on the ground in Georgia. So the, the Russians have basically carved off bits of Georgia in 2008. So Putin kind of, in a sense, got away with that. He got away with Crimea, the occupation of Crimea and the Donbass, which is the eastern part of of Ukraine in 2014, it was all done. It wasn't done as a kind of invasion, an obvious invasion, the way that it's done now. But he had uh, kind of mercenaries and private armies and militia and the like go in and occupy, and nothing very much happened. I mean, some sanctions were put on, but nothing very much. And the, the view in Europe, particularly, was we need to engage. I mean, yes, it's wrong, it's bad sanctions, but we need to engage. And the message that Putin took from that was the West is weak, the West doesn't care. Uh, I can pretty much do what I want. I mean, he looked at Afghanistan last year where the Western withdrawal was was pretty chaotic and messy and, uh, and the like. Uh, and I think his view was, you know, now's the time. Uh, I, I want to establish my legacy. I'm going to go. Uh, and you can argue about whether it's fully rational or not, but he's been saying this in his speeches for 
you know, a long time, but he sees Ukraine as part of Russia. He wants to kind of restore former boundaries and the like. So I think, you know, that the surprising, well, a couple of surprising things. One, that Putin actually did it, although the benefit of hindsight, perhaps we shouldn't have been as surprised. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the positively surprising thing is how much Western resolve there has been. You know, this hasn't been a repeat of 2008 and 2014, where it was kind of wet bus ticket sort of stuff. There has been a genuine uh, response, both in terms of military um, support going through and intelligence and a whole bunch of stuff going on uh, behind the scenes, uh, as well as the you know, unprecedented sanctions. So I wrote a note a couple of weeks back uh, talking about the First World Economic War, uh, basically that you know this is Russia's the 11th largest economy in the world, mm. member of the G20, and it's pretty much been excommunicated. I mean, there's some oil and gas uh, flows continuing, particularly to uh, Europe, US is banned, oil and gas imports, but that part of the Russian economy is okay, but everything else is pretty much gone. Central bank reserves have been frozen, the swift international banking systems, the Russian banks have been rejected from that, all the, the Western MNCs are coming out of Russia not doing business. So yeah, the, the economic sanctions, the economic pain on Russia is pretty acute. Uh, and I think you know, for the first time in a long time, NATO is coherent, it's determined. You know, the anger I mentioned a moment ago in Europe, that's real. Um, in terms of boots on the ground, kind of direct NATO or US support, military support to Ukraine, yeah, the, the, the real concern is that the moment you do that, there is a shooting match between Russian and US troops. Uh, it's very, very hard to predict what's going to happen thereafter. Yeah. It may be that we still end up with something like that. Uh, yeah. But I think there's a great deal of kind of weariness uh, that we'd like to kind of contain it to the, you know, the physical territory of Ukraine, as opposed to having something that kind of goes you know, beyond that. So, but look, this is... Uh, this is serious. It's really, really serious. The risk of escalation is non-trivial. The economic pain is obvious, uh, and it's got a potential to get quite a lot worse before it gets better. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the concern is though that if he, um, like, if the sanctions don't work, and let's come back to that, and they don't have the desired effect on Russia, and the strangling effect that we hope it will, and, and I'll get your comment on that in a minute. But the concern is, is that they. Um, Putin goes, hey, you know, the West uh, are not prepared to step in and defend in a military sense. I'm going to keep going because I want to extend my sphere of influence. I want to reinstate the USSR. And, um, you know, if if you believe that he's agreed that the Berlin Wall came down and that he wants to reinstate the power of Russia, then why would he stop? Um, the only reason he'd stop I guess, is it that he just doesn't have the, the um, resources to keep going? So, and I won't answer, answer that for us. Would he keep going if he could? Um, and you don't know that, you don't know the answer to that, but your you, insights, but, and then, and then um, but, you know, are these economic sanctions going to work? Like he's still attacking and how long can he keep going like this? Um, with the economy, with the economy being so so badly strangled, or has he got reserves that we don't understand? I mean, surely at some point he just can't keep funding this war. Yeah, I, I think you know, the economic sanctions. I don't think are going to stop him, uh, and I think there was a degree of realism about what the sanctions could do. The sanctions are largely about punishment, right? You can't do this uh, and expect to be part of the kind of at least the Western part of the, the global. Uh, system. So they basically said, look, you're out. You know, you're not going to benefit from the system at the same time that you're kind of bombing uh, cities and, and causing uh, mayhem and the like. Anyway, there's some hope that, you know, perhaps this would 
uh, you know, reduce the amount of financial resource available to him to kind of fund the war. Perhaps it would turn popular opinion against him and the like. But I mean, that was always seen as a pretty long shot. Um, Similarly, right. the oligarchs are not going to turn against Putin. So, you know, on the margin, yes, I mean, if this goes on for months slash years, you know, the fact that they've got, uh, you know, uh, kind of an imploding economy is going to begin to become uh, an issue. But in, if your horizon is the next few months, you know, the, the sanctions aren't going to uh, stop in particular, unless uh, Europe in particular just banned Russian oil and gas imports. Uh, if they did that, if they turned the, the, the switch off overnight, that would cause real pain, but would also obviously cause real pain for Europe as well. So they've not done that yet. So you know, the sanctions are, at least in my judgment, as much about punishment as much as you know, a hope that the, the invasion will, will kind of stop or will kind of drive into a peace table. It will be one of the factors that weigh on him, but it's not going to be decisive in part because Putin is not personally exposed to the stuff. I mean, he's rich enough, he doesn't really care that much about it. And he's not at particular risk, I don't think, of kind of a popular revolt. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's punishment. In terms of where this goes next, I think the by far the most likely scenario, and as you said, there's enormous uncertainty here, um, is that there is a stalemate of sorts. The Russians don't make enormous progress militarily. They don't take Kiev, they don't take the other major cities, but they kind of settle in and they just keep pounding with the artillery yeah. uh, from a distance, and as they have with, uh, with Moropol and others, they just kind of level these places, which is what they've done in Syria, what they did uh, in Chechnya uh, as well. So it's kind of their playbook. Yeah. Uh, and there's just kind of a war of attrition and you know the Ukrainians kind of keep pushing them back on the ground with the, the anti-tank missiles and the like, but basically it becomes a kind of a stalemate. Uh, and it goes on for quite some time until there's some, um, you know, at some point in time, um, you know, some, some peace deal. It's possible that happens, you know, the Russians, you know, I'm underestimating how much pain they're facing in terms of the economics particularly. It's possible that armed sufficiently, the Ukrainians could mount, you know, successful counterattacks and they're doing that, but they're still kind of outgunned and outmatched. So I think the most likely scenario over the next two, three months is something along the lines of what we've seen over the last few weeks or the last couple of weeks, I guess, which is not much forward progress, but just, you know, ongoing kind of carnage uh, and damage, and, and this kind of settles into a, you know, kind of a, a very messy um, stalemate period. You know, you, there are some wild cards. You know, China is one. You know, what will China do? Will they apply pressure? I think probably not, to be honest. They'll, they don't really want this to continue, but they're not going to expend uh, much capital on getting Russia to the negotiating table. So I, I think, you know, most likely we're in for quite a while of, roughly speaking, something like the status quo, a peace deal. I mean, there are negotiations underway, but I don't rate them. You know, a very big chance at the moment. You know, similarly, there is a chance of a coup or something like that. But again, that's a, I don't know, a 5% likelihood that's possible, but not, it's not likely, I don't think. So, you know, the, 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 this could, from a, from a Western perspective, this could go in one of two ways. It's possible that, you know, seeing every day pictures of civilians dead, you know, Russians shelling uh, old people's homes, tower blocks being demolished will kind of strengthen the resolve and say, look, we're not, we're not putting up with this. And it will force a decision about, do we invest more? Do we think about putting boots on the ground? Do we think about no-fly zones? That's one option. Mm -hmm. The second option, frankly, is more of a, yeah, this is just too painful. You know, oil prices are too high. You know, cracks begin to emerge in Western Resolve and, you know, the, the sanctions begin to kind of erode on the margin. So, look, there, there's lots of scenarios. I, I think, you know, even though the, the, the near term is pretty uncertain, I think the the big picture is slightly more, you can state with kind of higher conviction, uh, which is, you know, what Russia has done 
uh, its fundamental breach with the West, how the West has responded in terms of basically ejecting Russia from the global system, that's the keeps. Uh, and it's going to accelerate the decoupling of the West, and I use the term West uh, quite loosely to include South Korea and Japan and Taiwan and, and Australasia. Uh, you know, that decoupling, certainly from Russia, but also over time from China, because China obviously hasn't invaded anybody, at least not yet. But there are kind of ongoing political and strategic tensions with uh, China. So, yeah, to me, I think there's this kind of pulling apart the global economy, the way that it proceeds in terms of trade and investment flows is just a very different animal now than it was a month ago. And there's, there's no going back. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it is fundamentally, is what I'm hearing is, is that it's fundamentally uh, changing things. Um, and so then what are, what, what are the flow on effects um, at, a, at a fundamental level economically? And I guess we'll come to New Zealand, but um, you know, some of these things are going to be shorter term sanctions can be lifted um, and, you know, we perhaps return to, to, to normality, but are there going to be things economically that are more systemic and have longer lasting impact? Yes. Um, so, I mean, so, you know, even a, a good case scenario where hostility cease uh, and perhaps there's either a ceasefire or Russians withdraw. And so things like... Uh, uh, wheat exports, exports of fertilizer and the like can kind of resume. And so some of the, the pressure on energy and commodity prices, food prices begin to, to dissipate. Now, even in, in that kind of context, you know, a lot of the, the current pain is going to sustain for quite a while. I mean, the, the likelihood of sanctions being lifted is pretty nominal, uh, I think, because the political backlash in the US, in Europe, uh, is very, very, very uh, anti-Russia or anti-regime in Russia. I guess not Russian people as much as the, the kind of the, the Russian system. And so the sanctions are not going to be lifted anytime soon. That's going to be a very, very gradual process. And if you think about the behaviour of Western companies who have withdrawn from Russia, and almost all of them have, um, you know, apart from a few like uh, like Nestle, those companies are going to be very, very reluctant to get back into the Russian market because of stakeholder pressure, uh, staff, customers, investors. Um, uh, other stakeholders. Uh, and so, you know, the, the economic pain uh, from the war and from the sanctions is going to maintain, I think, for quite a while. Uh, so the return to kind of a, a pre-February 24 normality, uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, I think in a, in a more structural sense, there's a few things to uh, watch for that are going to be kind of different going forward. Uh, one is the decoupling point that I made uh, earlier, which is, I think, you know, economics and politics are now seen as deeply integrated. And so both at a, at a national level and also at a company or investor level, there's much greater sensitivity to political risk. So do you want to have market exposure, financial exposure to uh, jurisdictions with whom your kind of country of domicile you know, is likely to have political disputes at some point in the future? Uh, so it's obviously Russia, and it'll be Russia for a while, even if they have a, a new president at some point, uh, but also China. And for countries in the Asia Pacific, including Australia and New Zealand, you know, that's the, that's the big deal. And also, frankly, the country outside the Asia Pacific, you know, China is, you know, it's the number one export market for over 100 countries in the world. You know, it's the, depending on how you count, I have the largest and second largest economy in the world. So, you know, if Russia gets sanctioned meaningfully, you know, if, if you know, uh, China uh, threatens or invades Taiwan or there's some other major political dispute, or frankly, even if just the US keeps on tightening the screws on China as it has been over the last couple of years, yeah. Uh, and there's a gradual pulling apart. 
that's deeply material. And I think the, the sense of resolve uh, that you see in many Western countries, a sense that the, this sounds a bit cliche, but the kind of the Western order, you know, trade, democracy has been under threat from China and now obviously from Russia for quite some time. And the West has been a bit complacent, a bit kind of standing back. There's a sense that, you know, the West has to kind of stand up and be a lot more forceful uh, in terms of how it responds to that stuff. So I think that there's much greater appetite uh, for taking China on, uh, perhaps not quite as aggressively as with Russia, unless China really steps beyond the, uh, the mark. But I think, you know, that the global economy is pulling apart, it's fragmenting, uh, and the likelihood that you get a multipolar system with, you know, the West over here, China, maybe Russia over here, and then a kind of a, a, kind of a buffer zone of a lot of African countries, some Asian countries that are kind of in the middle, thinking countries like India, Vietnam, uh, and the like that are kind of uh, in the middle. I think, you know, that's a, uh, that's a pretty high conviction um, uh, sort of forecast. It's not particularly controversial, I don't think, but it's, I think the world is, uh, is changing. I think you know, elsewhere, you know, we're definitely going to see much increased security spending. So the Germans made the obvious U-turn in terms of hitting the 2% of GDP on, on military, which is the nominal NATO target, but very few NATO countries actually hit it. But across Europe, including Germany, there's a commitment to making that happen. So I, I just think there's a degree of seriousness, a degree of uh, coherence across the Western uh, countries, and that flows into the, the economic trade financial system. You know, that's a lot more political, it's going to become a lot more fragmented. Uh, and so for companies and countries that are trying to navigate this, it's not going to look like it did uh, pre-February. I mean, clearly there were, uh, this was kind of the, the direction of travel, but this has been accelerated. This fragmentation and decoupling is happening at a much faster rate than I would have picked even a couple of months ago. Uh, so, and again, even if, if there's a ceasefire tomorrow, you know, a lot of this stuff still goes through. Uh, it's 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 quasi-permanent in nature, I think. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because you have been uh, commenting or observing the deglobalization globalization, um, for a while, even just reading some of your stuff pre the um, Ukraine invasion. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that and that this is just accelerating it. So does that mean, therefore, that we're, we're into sort of sustained... Um, you know, sustained inflation for a period of time to come because surely the, 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 the decoupling is a driver of inflation because you can't have, you know, I guess what's resulted in some relatively low prices is the, the, the cooperation of manufacturing with China and, um, and does that result in a permanent um, sort of environment where until economies start... Um, re-gearing their own sort of manufacturing and maybe that's not going to happen but you know what is i'm really make, I'm making up my own story but how do you see the flow effect to prices and inflation yeah so there, there, there is going to be effect i mean if you go back to the, the 90s uh you know when central banks became independent and we moved into what's now called the great moderation you know decent growth rates low inflation there's a sense that we kind of cracked the code uh, but, you know, really the, the, the reason for that, you know, positive experience over much of the last few decades was not so much the fact that central banks were wonderful at what they did, although they were, they were pretty good and the institutions were pretty good. It was mainly because we had very intense uh, globalization. So global flows, trade and investment and the like uh, were increasing, supply chains growing across the world. So, you know, uh, sort of choice, quality went up, prices went down. It was a much more uh, efficient system. So that put downward pressure on 
uh, on, on inflation across advanced commodities. You had very good demographics. So labor supply was abundant, including for emerging markets. So there was downward pressure on wages as well. But many of those forces are reversing. So global flows, trade, investment and the like uh, are going to be much less uh, intense. You know, global supply chains are being disrupted and fragmented uh, in an accelerated way. Demographics uh, are turning against us. So working age populations are shrinking in China uh, and many other countries. So there are factors that have kind of depressed uh, inflation growth or inflation over the last uh, two, three decades are beginning to unwind. Now, I, I don't want to overstate that because I, I don't think that we're seeing a 180 degree turn uh, in, uh, in globalization. I think, you know, it's we're moving from an intense phase to a less intense phase. So there is a decoupling. Supply chains will become more regional or local. In some cases, that's for good economic reasons because you can automate stuff. So you don't need low cost labor in China or Vietnam. You can do it closer to home with 3D printing or automation or other forms of technology. So not all of this kind of retrenchment in local supply chains is inefficient. It might be the, the right commercial thing uh, to do, but on the margin, we're not gonna benefit from the same kind of following winds uh, that, that we've had. And the more abrupt this decoupling or fragmentation is, the more those price pressures are going to be. So I think, you know, the, this notion that we need to be somewhat more resilient, we need to have greater buffers in our supply chains, you know, that's kind of like paying an insurance premium, like we'll, we'll pay a slightly higher price, we'll be slightly less efficient because we want to have a bit more control uh, over our supply chains, be that food or energy or pharmaceuticals or, uh, or manufacturers or, or whatever it is. So I think, you know, if over the next decade or two, I think it is very likely that we have uh, inflation that runs hotter than we've seen previously, you know, partly because of these uh, structural uh, features of the global economy, partly because of demographics uh, as well. But I think compounded by the fact that central banks are going to be, uh, you know, have a slightly different uh, reaction function. So they're not going to be as jumpy on inflation uh, as they have been previously in terms of hiking interest rates at the first sight of inflation. Right. Even you know, over last year, you know, although it's a very unusual year because of COVID and now, uh, and now the war, I mean, you would imagine if you were just sort of seeing the stuff without any context that, you know, seven, eight percent inflation in the US and the Eurozone, interest rates would be a good deal higher than where they are. But central banks are proceeding in a very kind of gradual fashion, partly because they expect the stuff to moderate, the energy prices to come off, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but also partly because I think they're, you know, if you, if you push interest rates up too high too quickly, given the debt stock around the world, the risk is you do some real damage to the, the global economy. So yep. I think the inflation outlook, you know, over the next sort of decade or two is going to be, you know, higher, I think, than we've kind of grown up with the last sort of two, three decades. So rather than kind of a zero to two percent band, which is, you know, on average where it's been for many advanced economies, you know, I think, you know, on average, yeah, I'm making this up a little bit, obviously, but sort of three, four percent is a much more likely number. It's not going to stay at seven, eight percent. That's there's a degree of kind of transitory. Um, Right. Uh, inflationary pressure. So things like oil and gas prices will come off. It's just taking a bit longer than I had expected because of now uh, the invasion, so many shipping costs and supply chain disruptions will begin to moderate, I think, through the course of this year. Again, have prolonged a little bit by uh, the uh, invasion of Ukraine. But in general, a lot of this kind of the spike upwards is going to come off. But once we get beyond this kind of unusual transition period, you know, we're going to have to get used to you know, higher uh, wage pressures. And, and over time, uh, you know, that will lead to um, those higher price pressures, lead to higher wages, higher interest rates uh, and the like. So it's quite a different kind of cocktail of factors that, that investors, that firms, that governments are going to have to get used to. Uh, it's just, it's going to be quite a different world. Yeah, so, and, and what's the response to that? You know, like, what, are we going to see um, uh, people diving into the bond market um, 
more readily and moving away from the equities markets. Um, you know, it's going to, you know, for a long time with interest rates as low as they are, it hasn't been attractive to put your money with the bank. And is that going to change, you know, drive a, 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 a permanent result in a permanent change in, in investing profiles and where people are putting their money? Um, and is that going to be, uh, you know, is that a permanent change or is it, I mean, obviously it depends on, on returns and that, but I don't know if you've got, an, got a view around that. Yes, I mean, my, my um, I, mean, I, I think the combination of factors that I've just been talking about, premiums at real interest rates, so the nominal rate less inflation, uh, is going to be very low. It's negative at the moment in most advanced economies because inflation is, uh, is is high. So I think mm. interest rates, you know, nominal interest rates will probably bump up a little bit compared to where they are at the moment. And that's true for New Zealand, Australia, uh, Eurozone, uh, the US. So central banks will begin to lift rates, but inflation is going to be uh, I think for, for the most part higher than those nominal rates. So they're going to be real rates will be negative or, you know, or very low. Uh, so you know, keeping money in the bank, keeping money in uh, in, in bonds, I mean, it's inflation protected, is probably not a super place um, uh, to be. You know, I, I would be you know weary about uh, putting money into fixed income simply because I think the, the real rate story is going to be uh, is going to be negative or very very low for for, for, for quite some time. Uh, I think, you know, equities are, you know, obviously valuations are very, very high, not as high as they were perhaps a month ago, but they're yeah. still pretty high. Uh, but in periods of, you know, as long as you know, headline GDP growth remains okay, and I, I still remain, despite the, the the various kind of global economic uh, constraints we've been talking about, you know, the fact of sanctions and decoupling uh, and the like, in general, you know, I remain fairly upbeat on the structural global economic outlook. I think it's a good technology story. I think it's a good productivity story. Uh, you know, household balance sheets are in decent position. So I'm actually reasonably positive on kind of headline GDP growth as long as we avoid some of the kind of the extreme uh, kind of negative scenarios, kind of a full-fledged war or full-fledged protectionism. But in general, right. I'm pretty constructive. So it seems to me that equities, and you can argue about valuations and the right time to get into equities, um, but in, in general, I, I'm more positive about investing in equities because it, it gives you exposure to a, a decent economy uh, and you're not so exposed to, uh, you know, uh, sort of low or negative real interest rates. Yeah. Uh, and I think the other um, sort of bit of the, the global economy that's going to do well for a while is commodities, uh, right? So particularly commodities that are exposed to some structural drivers, so the green transition, so some of the the metals you know, from copper to palladium uh, and the like, but are various inputs into, into batteries, lithium is another. Yep. Anything that's kind of involved in, you know, where supply is tight, demand is high, you know, and that's kind of consistent with some of these directions. I think that's a pretty good place to be uh, as well. I mean, there are some short-term drivers to explain why commodity prices are particularly high at the moment, but I think in general, you know, commodities are a, a decent place, uh, a decent place to be. Yeah. So then, I mean, that was, I was a little bit divergent um, there, but then bringing this story back to New Zealand, where um, we have locked down, essentially locked down a lot longer than a lot of Northern Hemisphere countries. So, um, you know, Europe's basically forgotten COVID and to a large extent and moved on from what I can gather and talking to New Zealanders that, you know, we had somebody got that um, in our team that got um, locked out and uh, locked out, I say, in Spain and had to had to hibernate in Spain, which she was very happy to do. Unfortunately, could work remotely, um, but she just couldn't get over how COVID had become a non-issue in Europe. And yet, looking back into New Zealand, thinking it was really weird how um, how obsessed we were 
or are still are with COVID impacts and you know it's not getting into the argument about the rights or wrongs of how this government is dealing with it I mean I think it was probably you know any sane government probably would have locked the borders down initially back in 2020 but we're in the situation now where um, it, it, it feels like we're desperately trying to you know we're watching the rest of the world wake up and get going and now they've got another distraction being, being the Ukraine but um, is it that you know what I, what concerns me is we haven't even started to open up and we're just about to probably start to do that and I'm sure Ardern's gonna gonna drop mandates tomorrow and given two weeks notice in time for the school holidays there, there you go that's my my prediction two weeks from Wednesday at 11.59 p.m. Um, and, but we'll only just start to open up and open up to a world where all of a sudden oil prices are going through the roof and the cost to get down here is ludicrous um, because there's not enough planes, there's not enough, not enough supply. Has New Zealand shot itself in the foot where it's dealing with um, the COVID headache um, hangover as, and then, you know, entering an environment where we've got the war and what, what's the flow on effect? I mean, if you were talking to Ardern and on the phone and who knows, you don't have to answer this question directly, you probably are, given that you consult to a lot of um, economies, what would be your, um, if you could speak freely, so to speak, uh, what would be your message? Would you, be saying, would you be shouting at Ardern and Robertson and saying, hurry up, you've got to get this economy open because you're slipping behind, you know, your policy is crap. Um, I know, I know you too well, David, that you wouldn't be uh, be that you're far more diplomatic than um, than that. Yeah, well, what I think, you know, as you say, they are opening up and it's going kind of gradually and slowly, but I think there's now a momentum uh, to it. I mean, sitting in, in Europe watching the New Zealand response over the last couple of years, the first year was, was pretty good, uh, right? So, you know, in Europe, tons of cases, tons of deaths, New Zealand and lots of restrictions, uh, whereas New Zealand, you know, after the initial period of lockdown was kind of pretty much open for business. But as we know, it's, it's a game of two halves, right? And they went hard for a particular solution, uh, you know, kind of a very binary solution. And I think ended up backing themselves into a corner. Uh, whereas Europe and the US and others, partly because of the position they're in, it was always a degree of balance, right? How much are we prepared to, you know, how much cost are we prepared to take in terms of cases and, and hospitalizations and deaths versus the economy and I guess personal freedoms and things like that. Whereas for New Zealand, it was a very, Kind of binary uh, response uh, and I think you know as COVID has evolved and particularly since Omicron has come on it's all about shades of grey um, and so the Europeans uh, who've always taken a slightly more liberal approach have been you know very happy to open up to say look we're going to take a slightly if you like riskier approach uh, and we're going to say look we'll open up we're conscious of being more cases so we've got too many deaths uh, and now for the most part in the city of Europe and Evelyn's you'd be hard-pressed to know that there is a pandemic uh, at all everything is pretty much open for business Whereas in New Zealand, I think it's been a struggle to both for the government and I think also for the country as a whole to exit, you know, what is certainly seen in New Zealand as a world leading response. I mean, I'm not sure what it's seen by the world like that, but in New Zealand, I think it still is seen as a, a world leading uh, response. And I think, you know, partly because of politics, right, the government's staked its kind of political um, sort of uh, um, reputation, if you like, on the success of this particular approach, but also yeah, the national mood in New Zealand, it strikes me looking from the outside as being quite risk averse, right? So people, are, you look at the media coverage, you know, you sometimes think that COVID is a bit like the plague, uh, right? So there's a sense of kind of stay away, stay away. One case is, is too many. So I think yeah, partly the, the, the sluggishness of the New Zealand exit process is you know, partly the government uh, and government capability, but also I think partly because the New Zealand population is much more risk averse 
uh, than populations in Europe that have had a couple of years to kind of get used to this, uh, this, this balancing act. I think you know, in terms of what I would be shouting to New Zealand now, you know, given that there does seem, as I said, to be a, an exit pathway now, maybe it's going to be a bit stop-start, take a bit longer than it should, but I think it's pretty clear what the direction of travel is. The thing that worries me most, uh, you know, apart from the, the fact that this process has left a lot of kind of unseen damage that will become you know, a lot more evident, you know, you know, you know, businesses that have, uh, and households that have you know, yeah. gone into real financial distress, and I think that will become more evident uh, over time. But beyond that, I mean, the, the thing that concerns me most uh, in comparing New Zealand against uh, other countries that I'm, you know, that I know well is that we have spent much less time and much less money, frankly, in terms of the, the recovery packages that the government has announced, thinking about how we position New Zealand for the future. Uh, right, so we've done, you know, our GDP growth rates through COVID you know, in the top half dozen across advanced economies, along with Australia, in other Asian countries. So our, our headline GDP growth has been pretty good through the COVID period. Yep. Um, so New Zealand on that score gets a tick, but we've partly done that, not wholly, but partly done that by virtue of throwing enormous amounts of fiscal stimulus uh, at the economy. So big government deficits, various recovery packages, but almost all of that has been uh, kind of uh, various support packages to firms, to households, to kind of enable them, you know, so firms can keep paying wages to their staff, uh, things like that, which is you know, a, a perfectly sensible thing to do. But if you know the vast majority of your money is on those uh, short-term support measures, uh, you're not actually doing very much to position yourself for a world that's going to look quite different post-COVID. Whereas the response in countries like Singapore, where I'm still uh, deeply involved, uh, as well as Europe, is saying, well, look, okay, certainly the short-term measures are important, but the world post-COVID is going to be different. So the green transition has become a much bigger deal uh, both as a matter of policy, but also just a matter of kind of consumer and citizen preferences. So governments are thinking very hard about how do we accelerate the green transition. Uh, digital uh, is another, the future of work. Uh, identifying which sectors have got better growth prospects, which have got worse growth prospects because of the changes that COVID has, has generated, and how do we begin to help uh, our labour force adjust? How do we help labour shift from one part of the economy uh, to another? So, you know, I wouldn't say that countries are doing this perfectly, but there's a lot more action and effort on how do we position ourselves for a world post-COVID is going to be quite different. And now obviously we have the overlay of uh, the Ukraine invasion, shifts in global flows that we were talking about earlier. So yeah, the world is structurally different, uh, and particularly for small countries like New Zealand uh, that are very exposed to what happens beyond our borders. And our success depends in large measure on how well we are positioning ourselves for that world. Uh, and I think one of the big downsides for New Zealand having been uh, having had locked borders for a couple of years and counting is that we simply haven't travelled. Sounds like an obvious statement, but I, I don't. And I, I'm speaking to lots of businesses uh, every week in New Zealand about you know what I see happening: be it technology, consumer preferences, government action, and there's kind of a degree of kind of intellectual awareness because people read newspapers, they read the Economist magazine, but I think the kind of the intensity and speed of that change is I don't yet see that. Uh, landing in New Zealand, if you like, in terms of being really kind of viscerally felt. So it's a long way of answering your question, but I think the thing that worries me is we're coming out of you know, COVID. Yep. Uh, we're entering a world that is really quite different. It's changed in many ways. As I said, the adoption of technology, of new business models, uh, consumer preferences, uh, ways of doing business, and now the, the kind of the global flows bit. And we have to get ourselves really both at, at national level, things like labour market policy, migration, tax, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as well as adjusting to you know, a shifting global system, I'm not sure that we are ready for that. And that's where I think a lot more 
uh, sort of policy effort and frankly uh, corporate effort needs to be put because if we go back into the, the global economy once borders reopen, hopefully in the next little while, uh, and we try and use the same national playbook or company playbook, you know, I, I worry that we're, <laughs> we're going to get, um, uh, you know, we're not going to get the outcomes that we would like. So that's what I would be yelling and, and, and yelling that we need to really understand how the world has changed and, and begin to respond pretty quickly. David, I've known you for 35 years and I've never heard you yell in my life. So, <laughs> um, so but what is it? Like, I mean, what should New Zealand? So out of those things, digital, green transition, I mean, how, how can New Zealand play in, in any of those? Because we're a long way, like distance, distance does matter. Um, we're heavily reliant on producing um, milk powder and supplying that to the world. And now there'll be a whole lot less going to Russia, no doubt. Um, what's New Zealand's natural advantage and, and how can we start playing, you know, what is it that we should be pursuing? In your opinion, um, you know, is it that we've just got to go, you know, because of the, because of distance, we've got to go hard out on on a digital sort of tax strategy. Um, we've obviously got a green reputation to a degree. Um, is there a play on that? But, you know, given, I mean, what is the answer? Because New Zealand's not going to be able to hang around because um, to your point, there's probably a lot of um, pain yet to emerge. Uh, and this government may be tired and who knows what's going to happen at the, at the next election, but may, maybe they've sort of, they've run out of steam and there, there is, there, there, there could well be a change in the garden. Um, but, you know, and given that, if it's Luxon coming in, um, what should we be doing? You know, what's your opinion? Well, look, I, I can't give you a, a full perspective, but I, I'd say, uh, you know, if you just focus on the kind of externally facing parts of our economy. So if you think about this as kind of a portfolio of kind of goods and markets. So as you said, we sell uh, dairy and other commodities largely to China, uh, you know, dairy, red meat, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, those, uh, that part of our economy, which is our, our biggest single uh, export category, is challenged in two ways. Uh, one, it's challenged by virtue of the market that we sell it to, uh, China, uh, which for reasons that we were talking about earlier, uh, does have uh, a certain risk profile, largely a political risk profile in terms of, you know, are we gonna run into sanctions problems or other issues uh, down the track? Does it make sense to be as exposed? I mean, I think 33, 34% of our exports of goods go to China. That's a pretty chunky number. Uh, is, is that a number that we're kind of comfortable with? Do we need to think about diversifying? The government is doing some messaging and I know some of our, our large firms are thinking about this uh, as well. Uh, but, but that part of our economy is also challenged by technology. You know, um, uh, alternative proteins, uh, you know, plant-based meats, uh, plant-based uh, dairy and the like, consumer preferences shifting pretty rapidly towards low emissions stuff. So yes, we have a premium reputation uh, you know, for high quality uh, green stuff, but we're, there is an increasing array of competition to large parts of our export sector. So. You know, we need to think hard about you know, how sustainable uh, is that? What do we need to do to kind of keep ahead of technology, shifting consumer preferences? How do we diversify our, our market position? So that's kind of uh, bucket number one. But I think bucket number two is we've got you know, some strengths around digital creative, you know, what I've called the weightless economy. Uh, so basically services, uh, you know, which for a small remote economy makes sense, right? You can, you know, you can do online uh, stuff. I mean, Zero is a classic example. You can use technologies like Zoom, obviously, to kind of do business. You know, how do we kind of exploit these technologies to take New Zealand IP and sell it um, abroad uh, in, in a way that's not as 
subject to the, the tyranny of distance. That, that is still, despite the fact that everyone can point to kind of individual success stories, it's still, as a percent of GDP, reasonably small. Uh, and so how do you supercharge that? How do you get more zeros? How do you get 50 or 100 sort of zero style or zero scale companies? You know, a lot of that is around education, human capital, universities, R&D spending, you know, all of which have uh, big issues and constraints around them. So, but, uh, oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but then have we run out of money though? Like, I mean, so, so what you're pointing towards is investing in infrastructure and massive spending. And um, this government, rightly or wrongly, um, has just, as you, well, you've stated it yourself, has just spent a huge amount of money um, with some fiscal packages and, uh, you know, printed a lot of money. Uh, you know, how, how, how much more can we spend um, without... Well. <laughs> So I, I certainly think that the, the balance hasn't been right between kind of short-term support measures, which, you know, and, and for the most part, the support measures in New Zealand were well-designed, well-executed, well-delivered, made a big economic difference. So my, my quibble is really, you know, what sort of percentage of the overall quantum do you spend on those short-term support, you know, support measures versus something that's a bit more forward-looking in the future? Uh, and so, I mean, given the composition of this government, I've been really surprised at how little money was spent on the green transition, for example. You know, be that, I don't know, improving home insulation, which is a pretty labor-intensive activity, right? You can employ lots of people going around putting pink bats in houses, installing heat pumps uh, and the like, uh, or kind of uh, sort of <laughs> bigger ticket, more exotic stuff. We just haven't really spent much time thinking about those um, future products. I think the balance is, is wrong. Now, New Zealand, I mean, I've always been reasonably fiscally conservative, but it's also the case that when you are going through periods of regime change, you know, when you're going through a big structural change of the economy, you do need to invest in the future. Uh, and yes, government debt to GDP in New Zealand has gone up by around 20 percentage points of GDP or so. But we, people are still prepared to lend to us. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a binding budget constraint for New Zealand at the time. I think we could spend more. My, my issue is, are we spending on the right things? And, and is there a supporting strategy around that? So it's not just a matter of funding this program or funding that program. We're actually doing it in a coherent, uh, sustained manner. Look, we're going to invest in you know, what I'm calling the weightless economy. We're going to invest big time uh, in human capital education system. We're going to invest significantly more in research and development. We're going to try and attract more firms into New Zealand, and we're going to try and build something special in New Zealand. So really, you know, being a lot more deliberate about what we are, are doing, because you know, it's not that New Zealand is failing. You know, we can keep on running the same model as we have. It's just that we're not going to make any uh, ground on the countries ahead of us. Australia is about a third richer than us. You know, we've we haven't made any dent on that that gap for the last twenty or thirty years, and you know, we're not going to if we keep on running the same uh, model. And there is, as I said, risk written all over it. Uh, China, technology, consumer preferences. So you know, I, I don't actually think that we have much alternative. And, and that's true both for the government. I'd also say for companies as well, because if companies, you know, try and simply, you know, uh, sort of benefit from, you know, abundant supply of labour, reasonably low wages in New Zealand, low margin, um, you, know, you don't actually need to be that innovative to be successful in the New Zealand market. But that's not going to be, you know, sustainable for that much longer as, as well. So, you know, I think the government needs to start doing things differently, but so too do uh, corporates in New Zealand as well. You know, they need to understand that the world is shifting and that business models need to, to, to move as well. So, you know, I, I'm not prophesying, you know, disaster. Uh, all I am right. saying is that the world is changing. It's changing really quite rapidly uh, in ways that create opportunities for us, but also create significant risk exposures for, for, for New Zealand. And as we come out of COVID, uh, we're now confronted with Ukraine, as you say, you know, all of this stuff kind of comes together. Uh, so COVID had already accelerated a bunch of stuff, technology, consumer preferences, business models. Now we've got the Ukraine invasion, 
you know, accelerating a different set of uh, issues around decoupling and fragmentation. All this stuff is kind of mutually reinforcing and coming together. Uh, and we really need to figure out quickly what are our exposures and how do we need to position ourselves. Uh, I, I just uh, sort of my, my closing comment on that is I wrote a note uh, on Friday uh, called uh, Return of the 1970s, and I used New Zealand as an example. The 1970s are obviously pretty bad for a range of reasons, uh, yeah. which are kind of reminiscent of the current period oil price shocks, stagflation, uh, and the like. But my, my reflection on New Zealand was the way in which we responded to oil price shocks and the loss of preferential access to, uh, to the UK uh, was very expensive monetary policy, uh, expensive fiscal policy, and protectionism. So we tried to kind of buffer ourselves from these external shocks. You know, yep. 10 years later, huge crisis uh, in reforms. You know, many other advanced economies did that as well. I think for the benefit of hindsight, you know, the countries that did better through the 70s were those countries who were actively thinking, you know, the oil price shocks, et cetera, et cetera, are not simply a shock. It's a structural shift in the global economy. We need to start reducing our uh, reliance on energy. We need to start investing in new markets. We need to start innovating. Uh, and so you know, in periods of shock and turmoil, really figuring out how you uh, respond to that change deliberately as opposed to kind of bunkering down and trying to buffer yourself against the shock. You know, yeah. I think that's a really important message for New Zealand. If we just kind of bunker down, spend lots of money to kind of keep ourselves safe, you know, I, I worry that we're going to find ourselves in a position where we're a few steps behind the eight ball. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so bring it, bring it so from a macro level, just starting to talk about the property market. Um, and so I'd like you to uh, predict exactly how many percentage gain, how much percentage gain you're going to have in the next um, five years every year. Um, not, um, you know, because my approach has always been, look, you've got to return to fundamentals and understand what's going on. And there's always going to be noise. Um, but what are the fundamentals? Um, you're well aware that we have a supply demand imbalance in New Zealand with, uh, particularly with residential land where the, the, the real issue is not really, you know, successive governments try to um, stymie demand as a way to control house price. Um, but really, that's a tip from my point of view, that's just always a temporary measure to put a lid on things until they can't keep the lid on anymore because they need to release some credit so that um, houses can be built to meet the demand. And because, you know, obviously, as the population keeps growing, they've probably been able to um, then that's going to, as the borders open up again, my view is that uh, net migration will return, to return um, positively um, and then demand will grow again and we've got the supply constraint issue where uh, it's not so much about the ability to build houses, it's about the ability to um, get more residential land and they're trying to do more of that through um, through more intensive housing. But ultimately, you've, you've got to be able to open up land um, and so that's that's my sort of little thesis on it. And there is no easy answer to that. You've got the RMA and you've got the cost of um, consenting land development through council, which is pretty exorbitant. Um, so, but it's more about saying, well, what I'm hearing is from you is that um, there's nothing overly, you know, absolutely scary for New Zealand because it's it's doing okay it's probably more about how the longer term picture whether new zealand's going to be in the right place longer term um and and just the other element to that is that um with with inflation obviously uh rents go up so we've got for whether it's resi residential or commercial 
um, that will help to combat interest rate rises. So I'm not particularly concerned about that. I'm probably more concerned down the track about uh, what happens to New Zealand property if in 10 years there's been absolutely no investment in infrastructure or, or, or any of these, you know, transitioning to innovation that we start to sort of see a real stagnation and the only people that, you know, you, you get the, 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 the rich list who, um, the seriously rich, not the New Zealand rich list, but the international rich list that fall in love with New Zealand lifestyle that want to come and live here. So we still get those people coming here, but that the New Zealand economy grinds to a halt and that property just becomes, gosh, you know, could it ever become sort of almost third worldish because we, we just don't invest and what's the overall. So really it's just, an, a, that's my thesis, but just really open the platform for you to comment more broadly on New Zealand property without trying to, I'm, I'm, yeah. obviously, yeah. So no, a couple of things, when one, the um, when New Zealand house prices, as you know, uh, stretched on yeah, house to income compared to other countries, you know, it was well out there. Um, but over the COVID period, yeah, New Zealand house prices obviously rocketed up, but so have house prices around the world. Right, which yeah. is partly people just investing more, uh, just, you know, upgrading so they're spending they spend more time um, uh, in the home. So you know, a bit of a leg up in house prices over the last 18 months, two years, uh, I think are for the kind of structural COVID-related features um, you know, in a replicated the, the world over, partly stimulated by, by lower interest rates. So New Zealand's not unusual in terms of the last uh, couple of years. And I think not all of that, but aspects of that are kind of structural. So I'm sure there's a degree of excess and there's going to be a degree of kind of uh, you know, some of those gains being given up. But I also think, you know, there's an element of um, uh, sort, of, sort of structural support, I suppose, for house prices that we've seen around the world over the last um, 18 yeah. months or so. You know, going forward, I think, you know, uh, interest rates will go up a little bit. Uh, but to my point earlier, I think real interest rates are going to remain low. Yeah. Uh, interest rates will go up, but they're not going to go up, I don't think, in a uh, kind of a Paul Volcker early 1980s style way. They'll go up a little bit, but not not hugely. So. Yeah, that might knock a bit of a froth off housing markets, but not not a huge amount. Uh, I'm not sure how much is priced in in New Zealand at the moment in terms of uh, expectations um, in the investment uh, community. But I, I, I'm not um, overly, uh, or I'm not expecting you know, spike up in interest rates. To me, the, the biggest risk factor short term is the migration profile. So they're kind of the, the direct demand supply uh, imbalance. Supply is going to be constrained, I think, for a while. Uh, you know, partly for land reasons, but also just you know, tradesmen. Uh, cost of construction, there's a whole bunch of kind of uh, frictions on the supply side that I think are, are going to be challenging to, to resolve. But I think there are some uh, some downside risks, I suppose, on the migration story. So I think if I heard you correctly, your view is that, that migration would return to net positive uh, once borders, uh, the situation normalised there. You know, I, I think there's a, a decent chance that it goes negative for a while. Um, it's hard to be precise on, on this, and I've been uh, wrong before, but I think one, there's kind of pent up demand for the great OE and just think the people who haven't been able to leave with confidence for a couple of years saying, okay, here's my, my window. Now, I think there's significant labour demand from Australia uh, whose wages are already higher, but also have super tight labour markets in, but, uh, in the market, even from nurses and teachers to, to tradies to uh, you know, truck drivers to everything else. So there is, I think, a real uh, risk to New Zealand with a, sort of a sucking sound of labour, both skilled and less skilled uh, across the across the Tasman. Uh, and then I think it's an open question in terms of when uh, non-New Zealanders kind of return uh, in numbers. I mean, China's closed, um, uh, or at least uh, Chinese flows will be constrained for uh, a while. 
Yep. Uh, there are, uh, I think, issues with, uh, you know, flows out of India, Southeast Asia, traditionally big markets. So I guess I, my kind of my baseline is that we're going to see, uh, you know, a degree of, well, some negative numbers in, in net migration. So that will take a bit of a heat both out of the rental market and the, um, the, uh, the, um, uh, kind of the, the, the regular housing market, I think, for a period of time. Hard to be specific on that, but to me, that's the largest source of, I suppose, downside risk. Uh, using your kind of demand supply Christmas. But, but just to counter that, um, like I, I don't I don't deserve, disagree that there will be will be some outflow. Um, and you know we certainly saw that under under a Clark, Labour Clark government, um, I think. But on the flip side, um, isn't it isn't one of the solutions for a government, like I mean certainly John Key um, correct me if I'm wrong, pursued this strategy of opening the borders up and letting a lot of migrant labour in to help fuel the economy. And I mean, he wouldn't admit to that, that was a driver for it, um, I'm sure. But isn't but now we have a real, like, if I look in the Hawke's Bay and the, the, the amount of fruit that gets left on trees because we just don't have the labour and then we haven't got the truck drivers and we haven't got the hospitality, isn't the government going to try and um, fast track things um, could they try and fast track things by opening it up to the to the to the migrants? I mean, and then how many um, nurses do we need? And obviously, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of countries where there's qualified nurses that would slot in really nicely into the New Zealand economy. Won't that you know more than offset the the outflow, or is it not just numbers? That is it is it also the the type of person? Well, I, mean, I think you know, if you looked at the, 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 the pre-COVID peaks, we were getting about 150,000 net yeah. uh, into, is that right? I think it's right. Uh, maybe a bit less, but maybe it was 70. You know, okay, so I think it was 70, it's one and a half percent of resident population. So it's, it's less than 150. So I think it's, goodness, too late. It's about 70,000, 70, but it was, it was one and a half percent of resident population. So I think, I mean, yes, there, as you say, there are labour shortages, be it uh, nurses, uh, horticulture, et cetera, et cetera. So there's going to be demand for migration, but I, I don't think we're going to return to the, the migration inflows of a type that we were right. seeing pre-COVID. Uh, yeah. I think within this government, uh, certainly there's more sense of we need to be a bit more disciplined and constrained. We need to be encouraging firms to kind of train New Zealanders or to uh, be more productive in how they, they run businesses. So. I mean, yes, your John Key analogy, when push comes to shove, it might be that they decide to be a bit more lax on migration to kind of juice the economy a little bit, get more people in. Uh, but I don't think we're likely to go back to pre-COVID levels of migration for, uh, for, for some time. So yes, the numbers will go up because you're thinking about zero net at the moment, they'll, they'll go back up. Uh, I just don't think that we're going to see it uh, yeah. as positive. And I think there is a real risk that you know, net is negative for a period of time. But, right. but honestly, this, this is really, really hard to predict because a lot of it depends yeah. on policy settings, um, on the strength of the economy um, in New Zealand and elsewhere. So it's really hard to pick. But I think if I was to pick one meaningful risk to a property market, interest rates are clearly one, but I think that's pretty well understood and people have a you know, pretty well-structured view of that. Um, the, the biggest kind of other risk to me is uh, the strength of migration of population growth, mm. because if that comes in much weaker than people are expecting, uh, you know, I, I think we could see you know, that, that will have a, a subduing effect on uh, on residential um, property price uh, growth. And we've seen that correlation between migration rates and house price growth in New Zealand uh, for some time. So I think if that begins to kind of unwind uh, yep. or not come as strong, I think to me, that's the, the bigger risk. You know, on the other side, I think things like uh, industrial property, you know, logistics and the like, you know, I think that's a pretty good story just because of structural shifts in the economy, much more online commerce, 
uh, and you see that the world over similarly data centers. So anything that's kind of property with those kind of characteristics, you know, I think, you know, there's a, a much stronger kind of thematic story uh, that supports that. Uh, so yeah, residential, my, my major concern is really just the strength of migration, you know, longer term, as you say, kind of strength of the overall economy, how attractive are we both in terms of attracting and retaining people. Uh, so just to, um, like, just on that, like talking and thinking about and then the nature of migration, um, and that's, that's, you know, that's kind of, kind of interesting because it is going to be fast, from my point of view, watching that net migration profile, you know, it is a, I agree with you, it's a bit massive driver. And just shifting, like you're, you're now up in Europe and the Netherlands and, you know, the European way of living is very different to the historical way of, um, of or at least housing. Um, and we, we've been very used to our standalone, um, you know, three-bedroom standalone property. And, and we're starting to, you know, younger generations of the younger generation is starting to get used to living in a terraced housing and in, in terraced housing. Yeah, and and I've, we were, I was sort of talking about it with our, our co-director Lisa Phillips this morning in terms of you know when I was when we started this business 15 years ago uh, the whole property investment um, uh, sort of scene was very DIY and I could it was pretty sharky when it first kicked off 15 years ago in terms of property seminars and it's becoming more and more professional and the whole um, ability of young people to invest in property outright has is just becoming harder and harder and you could say well it's just just because of the current environment but it's been getting progressively harder because of the ability to get finance the um the amount of regulation and compliance around managing investment properties um is, is that the answer to new zealand's um to new zealand's housing wise that it's just got to get commercial and go you know um, professional quickly to be able to catch up to a European style of living and are we in for massive a sea change there or should we be seeking that? Well I mean preferences vary across the world I mean, I, when we left New Zealand uh, 15 years ago you know I was living in a four-bedroom standalone room we were a home uh, and then 11 years in Singapore living in basically apartments um, and you kind of get used to that style of living uh, we're now living in a Basically, a, a kind of a row house in the Netherlands. You know, we're all kind of uh, narrow, skinny houses. Uh, yeah. Everything's within walking distance. People on bikes, and, and so I, I guess you know, preferences shift. I think the attitudes, particularly of younger people, uh, given that home ownership for, for many is more of a distant dream. They're used to uh, kind of living in smaller places. Uh, they often they won't own a car. Um, well, people won't obviously, but you know, so preferences have shifted since when we were uh, young uh, a long time ago. And I think you know, part of the but is the on solution, both in terms of housing affordability, um, the property market, but also, frankly, in terms of addressing uh, things like reducing emissions, which is, among other things, going to involve much reduced transport emissions, is having much denser styles of living. Public transport is a much more kind of dominant mode of transport as opposed to everyone driving uh, in a car. So I think we are likely to see uh, sort of shifting modes of accommodation, so much more apartment style living, uh, you know, sort of row houses, semi-detached, rather than the kind of the standalone properties you know, greater clustering, much greater density around public transport nodes. So this is not new, I mean, you even see that in Sydney, a place like that, you certainly see it uh, in Europe. Um, so I, I think that New Zealand is likely to travel uh, in that direction as well. I mean, the issue is how do you make sure that the, the regulatory and policy and legislative uh, arrangements kind of keep up to date, you know, body corporates and, and the like, which are kind of professionalized uh, in Europe and in Singapore aren't as professionalized uh, in parts of New Zealand. So moving from that DIY models, the more, Kind of professional model, it seems to me, 
you know, part of the confidence building process so people feel confidence kind of buying into that, that mode. But I think, you know, it's a direction of travel that you see in Australia, which is probably the closest international analog uh, to New Zealand. Uh, and I think, you know, we, you know, if your horizon is long enough, 20, 30 years plus, we're probably going to become more European, if you like, yeah. uh, in terms of our the style of home. Now, you know, in many cases in Germany, for example, home ownership rates are very low. I don't think we're going to go there. But I think, you know, this notion of apartment living, uh, you know, smaller properties, higher population density, I think absolutely that's the direction in which we're, we're tracking. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm coming up an hour, so um, I won't keep you, but appreciate you sort of ranging across the whole from from global right down to my little pet subject of uh, style of housing. <laughs> um, what else have I missed? What else do I need? I mean, I think we've covered up a lot, but um, any anything else that you think is relevant from a, I, I guess, you know, we, we're coming at it from a property perspective, but but I'm not, you know, I think it's really important from our from our point of view to be aware of what's going on globally, to be able to translate like that back right down. And I, I mean, I'm hearing that New Zealand's not defeated in any way. You've got you've got concerns if it's it's more about if New Zealand doesn't get its skates on and start addressing its its strategy, really. It's it's competitive advantage, for want of a better word, and it just needs to get on with that and and address that. It's got to it's got to do that at pace to be able to compete internationally. Yeah, I mean, my, my concern about New Zealand is not that we are kind of facing existential risk, it's more just kind of foregone potential, right? We could be doing a, a lot better than we actually are. So that's the, my, my sense of frustration, which is not new. It's just that oh. you know, we, we always go for the 80% solution as opposed to going for something that's, that's really world-class. And I think, you know, at the moment, there are, there are no shortage of challenges. We've discussed a lot of them uh, over the last uh, hour or so. But, I also think there are big opportunities as well. Um, you know, shifting consumer preferences are, are somewhat moving in our direction as well. You know, we have a lot of strength, a lot of capability. We organize ourselves right. We build on our brand, both at a, a national level uh, and also a company or investor level. There's a lot of stuff that we could, you know, uh, that we can take advantage of. Uh, so, you know, periods of disruption uh, and flux, you know, you know, often benefit the folk that are most agile. And I think for small countries like New Zealand, we can be agile. We just need to get ourselves organized to do it. So then the window of opportunity is not going to remain open indefinitely. So the sooner we get our skates on, as you say, I think the better. Yeah, I mean, historically, obviously, New Zealanders are ridiculously innovative and uh, it's about harnessing, harnessing that. I mean, that's been a story for a, about New Zealand for a long time and that we are innovative. Um, but, it, you know, it is about, isn't it, about getting on and, and doing that and being able to put some kind of a structure around that and take that to the world and being, you know, so anybody can, um, I guess, write some code and, but can they do it in an innovative way that comes up with creative solutions? And so New Zealand might be more expensive from a coding point of view, but it's gonna, you know, it may be that you pay for the, for the top, sort of the top 20% piece of your software coding because New Zealanders can think about it. Is, and is that the direction that we need to get you know, I mean, that's just, just one approach, but I'm, I'm hearing you and hearing that we need to get on. So I guess let's get these borders open. And um, what I'm hearing from you is get your borders open and um, get on with it and get creative. Yeah, and, and realise that the world is not going to look like it did pre-COVID and even pre-February 24. So you know, expect to have to make some some changes, but there are big opportunities out there. We just need to uh, sort of get ready for them uh, and embrace them. Yeah. Okay. Hey, um, thanks a lot for making your time.
available, David, and um, be looking for another another catch up um, in, a, in a few weeks. Yep, fantastic. Hopefully, we can do the uh, the next one in person. Absolutely.